I love church. I just, my, my soul just needs this so desperately. I just, I, I so need to be reminded every week of, of what it is to be in the family of God, don't you? And the, the privileges and the blessings that are afforded to us in Christ Jesus are immeasurably more than we could even understand. And, and this is one of the sweetest gifts of all in this life is to join together, to be called into the family of God, to know his saving grace and to celebrate that together. Life is hard. This world is, is uh, assaulting us. Our own hearts assault us. The enemy is against us. And I was reminded as we were singing a couple of the songs this morning, and I hope your heart just resonates with this, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. In Christ Jesus we have overcome. And it's important, I think, just to remind ourselves of these truths because we're marching through the book of Acts right now. And if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to grab them, open them up to Acts chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to walk down to the front here and they're going to turn and walk towards the back. If you don't have a Bible, just slip your hand up in the air. We'll make sure a Bible gets into your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, please just consider this our gift to you this morning. Um, We're in the book of Acts and we're in Acts chapter 6 and we're seeing that the church is just exploding and, and it is just snowballing in a healthy way. And Satan has done everything he can in his power to try and halt the progress and the momentum of the gospel train that is just storming across Jerusalem and is now getting ready to burst forth beyond Jerusalem into the surrounding regions out into the world. And this is a pivotal point in the book of Acts. It's a, a turning point where the mission of God is beginning to be realized in the next stage, that pressing out beyond Jerusalem. And God is going to use a couple of individuals, uh, a few in particular, to begin to pave this way. Two individuals we read about last week are Stephen and Philip. And Stephen and Philip function kind of like a bridge to the Apostle Paul's ministry, and the Apostle Paul will come after them, and he will carry forth the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles in particular. But in between Peter and in between Paul sits these two men who have been set aside for a very specific task of beginning that kind of builds, building a bridge into the Gentile realm. We saw last week that Stephen was selected as one of seven men uh, full of faith. The scriptures tell us in verse 5, you can just look at that there, uh, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was identified as being godly and mature, and he was uh, set aside for a particular task in caring for the widows in the church that were being neglected. And what we see is that his service to the body of Christ reaches far beyond simply caring for, for widows. He becomes a powerful powerful apologist, an apologist uh, meaning making a defense for the faith to those who are opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He stands and he begins to declare with great power, with great courage, and with great boldness the truth of Jesus Christ. And Stephen, we see in Scripture, must have been, we don't know much about him, but what we do know points us to this reality. He was an astounding individual. I mean, he was a man to be respected and admired, and I believe in one sense the Scriptures are actually upholding him as a model for us to look at and say, that's what I need to be like. I need to be like Stephen in so many ways. 
We don't read a single negative thing about Stephen in the scriptures. What we see painted for us is a picture of faithfulness, and in particular, faithfulness in the line of fire, faithfulness in the most difficult and challenging of circumstances. In the heat of the opposition, Stephen, we know, if you've read ahead in your Bibles, uh, that he becomes the first martyr of the church, the first person killed for the faith. He will not be the last. He will be the first in a long line of faithful Christians who are unwilling to waver, unwilling to compromise, willing to give even their own life for Jesus Christ. Commentator David Williams points out that Stephen's faith was not different. He says he is full of faith. He didn't have a different faith in kind from the faith that all Christians have, but exceptional in the extent to which he was willing to trust Christ, to take him at his word, and to risk all for Christ's sake. This was a key requirement for someone who would be used by God to blaze a new trails for the gospel of Jesus Christ, to begin to reach into realms that the gospel had not yet gone to. So far, the church at this point is made up uh, mainly, almost entirely, of Jewish believers. The church has begun in Jerusalem, and naturally so, uh, Jews are coming to faith in Jesus Christ as Christianity really is an extension of the Jewish roots and Jewish background in the Old Testament, bringing it to fruition. The first phase of ministry is almost complete at this point in the life of the church. Jesus has told them to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the outermost parts of the earth. And at this point, it appears that the Jerusalem aspect of this mission is almost fulfilled As I mentioned, the Apostle Paul will begin to take the gospel even further, and he will pioneer this mission. But before Paul comes this man Stephen and Philip, and they will lay this foundation for the Gentile mission of the church. There are many who oppose Stephen. Probably, Even people within the church would have preferred for him to take a more cautious approach. Many would look at Stephen and say, man, for for a guy who seemed to be mature and godly, he sure wasted his life. I mean, if he was just, if he was just, would have calmed down a little bit, if maybe he wasn't so aggressive with the gospel, if maybe, maybe he just wasn't willing to stand up and, and, and declare the truth in front of these people at this time, maybe his ministry and his life could have actually been extended. But I would suggest to you that that is an incredibly short-sighted view of the ministry of, of Stephen. You see, Stephen will give his life, and here you have to see this in the providence and sovereignty of God. In giving his life, this will become the very catalyst for the gospel to explode into the nations. This murder of Stephen will actually be the reason that Christians will now disperse and go out into the world. They will flee for their lives, and listen, as they flee, as they go into the surrounding countries, they carry with them the hope of the world. Justin Martyr, our church father, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. The blood of the martyrs, listen, it's not wasted blood. It is what actually brings forth greater gospel fruit. Stephen saw certain implications in what the Bible taught and what Christ did, and he was willing. I, just, I love this about Stephen. He was so willing to risk all, all for the truth of those implications. Here is a man I want you to see as we we examine Stephen in this section of God's word. Here is a man whose heart beat with Christ's heart. 
till the very last beat. Stephen's example shows us how to live, and he shows us how to die. Never do we see the meaning and worth of life more clearly or more poignantly than in the final moments of a faithful Christian's life on earth. And he reminds us that the length of a man's life doesn't determine the greatness of his impact. The degree to which we are like Christ is the degree to which our lives will have impact on this world. Doesn't matter how long you live, doesn't matter where you live, it matters who you look like in this life. And Stephen paints for us a picture of what it means to be Christ-like, and he shows that when when Christ-likeness is evident in our life, listen, the ministry that we have and the impact and the opportunity that we have is so much greater than what we can imagine. So this morning, as we look at this text, I want to lay this before you, and we're going to dig into this. The greatest life we can live is a Christ-like life, and that's what Stephen shows us. It begins, we'll pick up at verse 8, and it says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom of the Spirit with which he was speaking. And then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. There's so much, so much going on here. It's so powerful, but just jot this down. The point of this text, the point of this sermon is to remind us that the greatest life we can live is a Christ-like life. And if that is our objective, if Christ-likeness is our objective in this life, it requires that we are committed to doing four things. First, pursuing Christ-like character. Pursuing Christ-like character. On the last day of his life, Stephen lived like Christ lived. While this is true of his final day, we can be assured that this man had been cultivating a Christ-like life from the moment that he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And that's evidenced by the reality that amongst all of the people in the church, Stephen was selected with seven other men who exemplified godliness and holiness, maturity. While we can be sure that he was uniquely set apart by God for a special task, we can also be sure that this didn't happen by accident. And one of the things that we need to embrace is that Christ-like character isn't something that happens overnight, and it's not something that ever happens by accident. You don't embrace Jesus Christ and then instantly begin to look like Christ in every area of your life. It requires great intentionality. It requires great effort. It requires great focus. One of the benefits of coming to Christ is that 
we are set free from sin and the Spirit of God begins to dwell within us and the Spirit of God empowers us to do what we cannot do on our own. He is producing within us Christ-likeness, but we are not removed from that equation. Too many Christians believe that spiritual maturity is just suddenly going to fall upon them or maybe as they get older, they'll just simply become more godly and I want to suggest to you a fairly young church that that is not the reality in life. It begins now, it begins wherever you're at, whatever age you're at, this must become the driving pursuit of your life to be like Jesus Christ and out of that pursuit will flow an impactful life, a meaningful life. A life with great influence. Verse 8, notice with me, it says Stephen is full of grace and power. Spiritual maturity and spiritual character, Christ-like character, is really defined here by two things, grace and power. Like Christ, did you notice this? Christ was described as being someone who was full of grace. There was no part of Jesus that wasn't full of grace. And then in the New Testament, grace refers to the unmerited, unlimited riches of God poured upon us through Christ. It is totally undeserved favor from God that is just lavished upon us in and through Jesus Christ. God's riches flowed through Stephen and onto those around him. That's what you need to see happening here in his life. There's a kind of a spillover effect in his life as, he, as the grace of God is evident to him as he responds to the grace of God. What happens is this, it begins to saturate him. It begins to fill him uh, like a, a well that is just building and building and it begins to bubble over into the lives of everybody around him. He is full of grace. In pre-Christian times, the word grace was used to describe the charm of a woman or or of one's speech. The idea of winsomeness of speech. You know, let your speech be seasoned with grace. Let it be winsome. The word's background suggests beauty and symmetry, rhythm, elegance, loveliness, and all of this was seen in Stephen. It's just an amazing description of of how he lived his life and how he interacted with people and what was so evident in his life. He is full of grace. Stephen possessed a charm of character that touched even those who did not know or understand its source. Stephen had let God's grace impact him so much that it had made him a gracious person. Let me ask you, as a follower of Christ, is graciousness, is there a sweetness uh, that defines you? If others were to ask, if you went to others and said, hey, would you tell me something about my character? Would graciousness, would a sweetness characterize you? Or or would it be the opposite, a harshness or, or a bitterness? There was something so visible and tangible in his character that resembled Jesus Christ. The only way a believer can live like Stephen is by dying to his sinful self. 
Those busy looking out for their own interests will have little time or inclination to abandon themselves and they will never experience the grace that Stephen experienced. If you live your life just for you, if you are the center of your affection and attention, if it all, you know, the world revolves around you, you, you cannot have this kind of a gracious, Christ-like spirit that Stephen exemplifies here in such a powerful way. You must learn to die to yourself. He was also a man, notice this, who shared Christ's power. His ministry closely resembles, did you notice this, that of the apostles. There's a really close parallel, and I believe it has something to do with the fact that the apostles actually laid hands on them, and they commissioned them to this work of service, and I believe it also has something to do with the unique ministry that Stephen has been given by God. A transitioning from a Jewish movement to a worldwide movement. We know this, that the signs and wonders, look at them here, it says that he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This was the evidence that, that verified and confirmed that the messengers, the apostles in particular, but now Stephen and Philip will fit into this category as well, were actually from God. They spoke on behalf of God, and they could do things that verified only God could do this. Only God could give this power called people to pay attention. There's something here, too, that we're going to see fleshed out uh, next week when Stephen begins his speech, and he begins to unfold an Old Testament history. And one of the things he begins to do is highlight the words of the prophets and how uh, these Jewish, their Jewish ancestors, they rejected the prophets. And there's something to what, what is happening here that's paving the way for this speech. You see, Stephen is being set up by God as a prophet. He's a New Testament prophet, and God is verifying him, and what's going to happen is these Jews are going to fit into a pattern that has existed among the Jewish people for all time, and it will serve as a powerful rebuke to them. Don't, don't miss the point of this. Look, though we're not walking around uh, with powerful signs and miracles, don't miss this. Spiritual power is a mark of Christian character. And you have to see the connections that are unfolding here in the text. You know, taken together, verses 5 and verse 8, they give both a God-word and a man-word side of Christian character. A man or a woman full of faith and full of the Spirit a man who is full of faith towards God, who is so convicted about the truth, who follows God with all of his heart, and then is filled with the Spirit, is giving over control to the Spirit of God, is living for God in all areas of life. That will be a gracious person. That will be someone who manifests such grace and mercy and compassion toward others and also begins to manifest great spiritual power and influence and effectiveness. All Christian joy and usefulness, all power and grace flow from faithful obedience to God. Mark that down, Christian. Stephen's life displayed God's grace and power because he was filled with obedient faith in the Holy Spirit. There's no other path to Christ-like character and a spiritu- than a spiritually, uh, and a spiritually influential life than the path that Stephen models for us here. He is full of these things, listen, because he is full of Christ. 
Faithfulness in our life, especially faithfulness in the line of fire, requires pursuing Christ-like character. And so let me encourage you this morning and let me exhort you, there is no other pursuit in your life that even comes close than pursuing Jesus Christ and asking God to produce within you the character of Christ, forming you into the very image of Jesus Christ. Second, I want you to note this, faithfulness requires practicing Christ-like courage. Practicing Christ-like courage. Verses 9 and 10 say this, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Uh, There's a lot of implications here, but what you need to see is this, that Stephen, again, we see an example of someone who took the call uh, seriously, the Christian call and and responsibility to go and preach the gospel to anybody and everybody who would listen. I mean, here's a man who was uh, unwavering in this commitment to tell people about Jesus Christ. And he wasn't shying away from going to the hard places. I mean, he begins to walk right into the, the synagogues. Synagogues were places that Jewish people assembled to read the scriptures and worship. They were different from the temple, and they were established um, in in many ways because people didn't have the access to the temple. You know, they they moved away, and so they couldn't get back to the temple. The temple signifies the presence of God. It is the center of the Jewish faith. And, And so synagogues were established where people would come to study the Torah, study the word of God, to have debates, to care for needs in the community, to worship together. And I, I, it's so fascinating that this is where Stephen heads. And you want to know what he does? He begins to pave uh, the way for the Apostle Paul who will come after him. And Acts tells us that whenever the Apostle Paul went into another city and town, where's the first place he went? The synagogues. He goes to the religious leaders. He goes to those who claim to know the scriptures, claim to believe the scriptures, claim to love the scriptures. And he wants to argue. Here's why. Look, he wants to argue from the scriptures who Jesus Christ is. He wants to show them that the Bible, the Old Testament, has always pointed towards Jesus Christ. This synagogue here is filled with Hellenist Jews from all over. There's debate about whether or not this signifies one or two or four or maybe even five different synagogues. Um, that, you know, or have all now collaborated to, to come against Stephen. If that's true, that just tells us this. Stephen would be going wherever he could. He'd be going to all the synagogues, and he'd be engaging and disputing with anybody who would listen. Or it's possible, this is, and it's, this is probably likely, it's one synagogue where all of these freedmen, freedmen, by the way, are um, just exactly what it sounds like. They had formerly been slaves or children of slaves who had been emancipated, who'd been set free. And they come from areas outside of Jerusalem, so they probably don't speak the Hebrew dialect, and so they all gather together in synagogues where they have a a different kind of relatability, and maybe the language barriers aren't as dramatic. It's possible that this one synagogue is just representing all of these different groups who come and meet from all over the place. 
And what you see here, and here's where we see, we're seeing a transition. Uh, these Jews are from all around Jerusalem. I mean, branching into Africa and Asia. And you see, this is intentional. The Spirit of God is telling us. You see, the gospel is now going to begin to bridge gaps, social gaps, listen, and geographical gaps. It's going to go across to the world. It's likely that Stephen is going and debating with the most brilliant minds. It's possible, by the way, uh, that one of the individuals represented, even in this dispute, is the Apostle Paul. The city where he is from could be represented here. That's going to come into play a little bit later. But Stephen, notice this, he goes and he disputes with these. Now, we have this kind of negative connotation when we hear a word like dispute, and we think instantly of arguments or unhealthy quarrels or controversies. The nature of this word is very different, though. It's not intending to be quarrelsome in any way. It's a more formal style of debating. It was a normal part of life and culture. It would be like walking in and sitting down across a table or a round table discussion where you're batting ideas around, you're disagreeing, agreeing, you're engaging with one another, and what we see here is that Stephen is no match for these men. All of the most brilliant minds get together, those who had studied the law, those who say they love the law, and they have nothing, they can't hold a a candle to Stephen. And their attacks start coming, and Stephen starts defending It's safe to assume that Stephen didn't go in guns blazing. Remember, he's a man full of grace. And there are some some kinds of Christians who are angry evangelists. And I want to encourage you not to be one of those. You know, you pull out the hammer and you start beating people with the truth. And let Stephen be an example. Look, he is full of grace. He wasn't belligerent. He wasn't rude or obnoxious. I mean, he, he wasn't aggressive in a, in, a, in, a, in a negative sense of the word. He's aggressive in the right way where he won't back down. He wants to continue to press for the truth. The Spirit of God is working in his heart as he begins to dispute and reason with these men. And that's exactly what you need to see. He's trying to reason with them. And this again, this is the model. And this is what we need to be practicing in our Christ-like courage. We need to practice the ability to reason from the Scriptures, from the Word of God. Stephen is is really the fulfillment of the prayers from Acts chapter 1 and 2 where they prayed for boldness. And here is a man who's just got such great boldness. I was um, talking with my kids, and I don't know about your kids, but one of the things that I'm noticing is that my, my kids want to pray for certain things. You know how you get into habits? Maybe you do this in your life too. Do you ever say like the same prayer all the time? Right, you know what I mean? Like you just have the same way of praying. It's the exact same things. You phrase things the same way. You even have the same intonation. And you know, maybe it's the, the prayer for your kids before they go to bed, and your kids could recite it word for word. Kids just they, they pick up on things like that. And and somewhere down the line, my kids have picked up um, that one of the most important things to pray for is safety. Your kids pray like that? 
Like, so, so when we pray, when, when, and I'll ask my kids, I do this with my kids often, okay, okay, um, Karis, what should we pray for tonight? What do you think we need to pray for? Or I'm, I'm leaving on a trip, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, leaving, I'm going to Haiti, I'm leaving, this is real, I'm going to Haiti tonight, and um, I'm going on a, a vision trip to see what God is doing in Haiti. We're planting some churches there through Harvest, and I want to go and explore and bring some stuff back to you as a church and say maybe God is calling us to get involved here. But, but I sat down with my daughter yesterday. We had a little daddy-daughter date, and, you know, I'm going away to Haiti, and she's all upset, and why are you leaving me, Dad? And how could you do this to me? Don't you love me? She's very dramatic. Um, and I said, well, what do, you think, what do you think we should pray for? Well, we should pray that you're safe. And I'm picking up on this more and more, and so what I said to my daughter, I, I looked at her, I said, honey, I said, you know, it's, it's okay to pray that God would keep us safe, but here's, let me say that God doesn't always keep us safe the way we think he should or the way we want him to. In fact, sometimes God lets people um, get hurt. Sometimes God lets people get killed. And we talked a little bit, and you know, she's floored at this. She's stunned. And I'm, I'm talking her through even some faithful Christians who've been p- killed because of preaching the gospel in places. I, I told her about Jim Elliott. And, you know, and, and I, I said, you know, isn't it better? Do you think maybe instead of praying that God would keep us safe every day, why don't we pray that God keeps us faithful? I'm trying to help change her her mind and, and change the way she thinks because, listen, Christian, there's no guarantee that you're going to be kept safe in this Christian life. In fact, here's what I would argue. Stephen reminds us, doesn't he, that safety when you're a Christian is a luxury that many people can afford. And it's a luxury that in many, many people and in many places around the world, people will never experience. Safety doesn't exist for many who call themselves a follower of Christ because they call themselves a follower of Christ. So the issue isn't about God keeping us safe. Listen, Christian, if you want to pray for anything, pray that God keeps you faithful, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the pressure, regardless of the pain. It doesn't matter. God, keep me faithful. Keep me faithful to your word. Keep me faithful to the truth. Keep me faithful to do what you've called me to do. Keep me faithful. I don't want to back down, God. Silent, listen, here's what Stephen reminds us too. Silent Christianity isn't biblical Christianity. Let that sink in for a second. Silent Christianity is not biblical Christianity. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't share the gospel, okay? That's hard, isn't it? It's incongruent to say you love Jesus Christ and not tell people about Jesus Christ. And yet, how many of us, listen, feeling the weight of this conviction, right? Let it sit heavy. We're supposed to feel the weight of this conviction right now. Don't remove the weight of conviction. Don't excuse the conviction. Let it sit heavy on your shoulders right now. Christian, this is what we're called to. This is what we're called to. I feel the weight of this. I don't want to escape from this weight because I want to be driven to tell people about Jesus Christ. Silent Christianity isn't biblical Christianity. Listen, safe Christianity isn't biblical Christianity. In fact, turn in your Bibles, keep your finger in Acts, and I just want to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we know the Apostle Paul He's telling us a little bit about what it means to be in in ministry, and um, we could read the whole chapter 4, but let me just pick up in verse 7. Follow along with me. Listen to what Paul says. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power, remember what Stephen's exemplifying, power. 
belongs to God and not to us. And listen to this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. This does not sound like safe Christianity. For we who live, listen, this is what Paul says, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. You know what he's saying? Like the, the, the possibility of being killed for the faith is always a present reality. Every time I turn around, I could be killed for the faith. It's real. My life, every day I live my life, I know this could be the day I give my life up for Jesus Christ. This could be the day I go home to see Jesus because I preach Jesus. You say, well, that's costly. That, that's, that's unbelievable. I mean, how, well, how can we live like this? Well, look at what he says. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We can be like Jesus. And notice this. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Don't you see? He's saying, look, I'm willing to die so that you can know life. Since we have the same spirit of faith. What was Stephen full of in, chapter, in, in verse 5? Full of faith. Listen, we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed, I love this, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. Christian, you can't escape this responsibility. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Like, do you see what's at stake here? You say, how could, how could people live like this? Why do we believe so firmly in the truth of the gospel? Because, why are we willing to give so much for Jesus Christ? Because when we do, listen, when we're willing to sacrifice it all, listen, the gospel goes forth, people can have life in Jesus Christ, and thanksgiving in their hearts can bubble forth into more praise and honor and glory. You see, exponential glory given over to God. This is the pursuit of the Christian. This is why we are called to be courageous. And when you read the rest of this chapter, and Paul talks right about how this momentary light affliction, it's nothing. It's nothing. Nothing compared to the glory that awaits us in Christ. So here he is, he's just being so faithful. Notice this in verse 10, that it was an inspired wisdom. Uh, this wasn't something that he conjured up in himself. This was a byproduct of faithful, uh, consistent obedience to God. Verse 10, it says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. It was so powerful, it could not be refuted. That's the point here. I mean, the spirit of God is helping Stephen preach in such a way that they can't respond, they, they can't argue, I mean, they, they can't figure out a way around what he's saying, and this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said to the disciples, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. That's Luke 21, 15. And we don't know the exact nature of the conversations, but we know this. The charges that they're going to lay against him uh, will begin to shed a little bit of light. There's always a hint of truth in, in false accusations. 
But we can assume, it's safe to assume based on what they accuse him of, listen, that the conversations revolves all around Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of the scriptures. And that he was attempting to convince them from the word of God, from the Old Testament, that Jesus was the Messiah, that his death, his burial, his resurrection, his exaltation, all of this was real. He was showing them likely, look, the inability of the Mosaic law to save them and and the inability of the temple to actually provide for them the presence of God that they truly needed. The fulfillment of all those things they pointed towards and had arrived in one person, Jesus Christ. By the way, this doesn't mean that they were convinced. Just because they couldn't refute him doesn't mean that they were convinced. They, weren't, uh, just, they were stopped in their tracks, but they wouldn't embrace what he had to say. I just want to suggest, as we just consider the nature of this conversation and the dispute that he's having with them, I want to suggest to you that the primary goal in Christian debate is not to win arguments. It is to win souls. And if your primary goal in engaging with people is simply to win an argument, you are so far down the wrong path. We have, look, we have the, the, the benefit of having truth on our side, okay? We don't have anything to worry about. We may not know how to handle that the way we ought to right now, but we have the unique benefit of having truth on our side. There is nothing that the world can say that can change the truth, that can diminish the truth, that can undercut the truth. We have the truth of God, amen? We wield the truth, I hope, to greater and greater degrees, but if your objective is simply to win arguments, just note this, if you say the right thing the wrong way, it isn't right. Let me say that again. If you say the right thing the wrong way, it isn't right. Don't expect everyone to bow the knee just because they can't refute what you say. And even when you've said it the right way, by the way, I think Stephen is a model of this. He not only wins arguments, he's attempting to win souls, and he's doing it all in such a beautiful and powerful, spirit-filled way. In fact, what we need to understand is this. Faithfulness requires that we are presuming Christ-like confrontation. We are expecting confrontation from the world. And I don't mean this in a pessimistic sense. I think we need to be hopefully optimistic when we bring the gospel that God is gonna work to save sinners. But we also have to be realistic to what the scriptures tell us about what we're doing. We walk out into a hostile world and the world hates the truth. They love the darkness, John tells us. Just like we all loved darkness at one point and resisted the light. Verses 11 through 14 break down this controversy that is beginning to erupt. And what we see here is that they, had, they secretly instigate men. And they start stirring people up to now come with false accusations and to claim that Stephen is guilty of blaspheming against Moses and God. Interesting, isn't it, that they put Moses before God? I'm reminded as I think about the confrontation and how these events unfold of, aren't you, of Jesus Christ and the mock trial that he went through? 
I mean, there's so many close parallels here, and if you could do a study and and line up the way that Jesus was accused and the trial he went through, and Stephen, I I think I I was doing a comparison, there were something like eight or ten almost exact parallels between the two, which just reminds us, listen, that Stephen is a Christ-like figure. He is modeling for us Christ-likeness, and the confrontation that Jesus faced is not abnormal in the Christian experience. It happened here with Stephen, and we should expect some similar things to happen with us. They did the same thing to Jesus. They couldn't refute Jesus, and yet he was constantly being opposed. They accused him of blasphemy. They they tried to take his life and eventually succeeded. The truth, listen, this is why we need to expect confrontation. The truth confronts people in their autonomy, and it confronts their authority, and so it will often make people angry. Multiple times, they tried to kill Jesus because of the things he said. They couldn't argue with the truth, and so what do they do? What does somebody do in a debate when they can't win the argument? They start attacking the person. I mean, they just start going after the... We see this in the, in the political sphere, even right now. I, I don't know if you follow a U.S. politics. I'm, I'm fascinated by U.S. politics and especially the entertainment factor they provide uh, these days. But it's amazing to see, even within one's own political party, the slanderous accusations that begin to erupt. They begin to no longer debate policy and issues. They begin to attack each other. You can't trust him. He's a liar. And that's exactly what they do here, right? They can't win the argument, so they resort to an ad hominem attack, the attack on the person. And there's a great reminder in here for us, listen, Christians, as we engage with people, be careful you don't fall into this trap. If you can't win the argument, don't attack the person. It destroys your credibility. They start to slander Stephen. They they defame his character. I'll never forget, we, we are talking, speaking of church planting, we're also connected with um, planting churches in Nepal. Many of you know that. Some of you are new. Maybe you don't realize that. Uh, we've been um, deeply connected with Nepal. And Pastor Timothy there, he, kinda, he leads um, the main church in Kathmandu, and he's spearheaded the church planting in, in Nepal. And uh, I'll never forget what he told me about um, him when he began ministry, and even throughout the early years of his ministry, um, He was opposed so greatly that they were spreading in the community all kinds of vicious lies about him. They were telling people in the community that he was a rapist, that he was a murderer. They were telling people that he was a child molester. And all of this, listen, because they hated the truth that he was preaching. But it's amazing to watch what unfolds here because one spirit-filled mind was greater than all of the minds coming against him. They hire these false witnesses just like they did with Jesus. They accuse Stephen of blasphemy just like they did with Jesus. And notice it again, against who? Against Moses and God. Moses first. That tells you what they think of the law. It tells you how they highly valued the, the law, the Old Testament, which Moses wrote. The Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament in particular. And if you spoke against what Moses said, you've ultimately spoken against what God said. 
And so they tie the two together. If you blasphemed Moses, he was a representative of God. You've actually blasphemed God himself. And that's true if it's actually happening. But evidently, Stephen has not only poked holes in their understanding of the law, he's silenced them with his argument of how Jesus fulfills the law. I mean, Stephen's no slouch, and that's part of what this, this is trying to communicate to us. He is a master debater. He has a firm handle on the scriptures. He's going in and dealing with the most brilliant theological minds of the day, and he is just, just running circles around them. And they claim that Stephen has spoken evil of Moses when really he was actually teaching them the truth of what Moses had actually said. Verse 12 through 14 says, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came, uh, they came upon him and they seized him. Uh, there's a violent progression in this text with the, the verbs that are used here, okay? Uh, they instigated men. They stirred people up. They're inciting people. They come upon them. They seize them. They bring them. You see this vicious picture of opposition. And I would just suggest to you that when we walk out into a hostile world, we should expect nothing less. We should be thankful when we don't have it as bad as Stephen, but we should expect nothing less. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. What's this holy place? The temple. The holy place where the presence of God dwelt. He's speaking about the holy place in a negative way. And the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, now just take note, they throw Nazareth in there every time they speak of Jesus because they hate places like Nazareth. It's, a, it's not a great place to come from, so it's an insult. Pfft, Jesus of Nazareth. He's telling them that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, this temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, again, remember, there's a hint of truth, but they're, they're manipulating. Here's what they're doing. Listen, here's what people will do to you too. They'll distort your words. They're not just going to defame your character. They're going to distort your words. They're going to make it seem like you're saying something you never said. And there's no doubt in my mind that he went after the law, right? And there's no doubt in my mind that he went after the temple. And Jesus did the same thing because they had the wrong understanding of the law. They had the wrong understanding of the temple. And in reality, and we're going to see this next week, so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but they had made an idol of the law and an idol of the temple. And they were bowing down to them instead of bowing down to the God who made those things what they were. There's no doubt he went after this and he said, guys, listen, listen, the law of Moses can't save you. you know, just being obedient to the law can't save anybody. You can't be perfect. You have too much sin in your life. The law was never intended to tell you that you could be perfect. It was intended to show you that you can't. There's no doubt that he attempted to show them how the Old Testament had 
passed by and a new covenant had arrived in Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that he showed them that the temple and the sacrifices that were offered there were no longer necessary. You can just imagine the conversation. Guys, listen, listen. You know all those animals that we bring every year into the temple and we celebrate the Passover. You know, and, and a perfect spotless animal's got to be brought and it's got to be killed and just hundreds of thousands of animals month after month, year after year, week after week, day after day. Remember those reminders, guys. We did that because God was reminding us that we're sinners alienated from God. And, and, and when we brought those perfect spotless animals, we were being reminded by God. It was a symbol to remind us that something had to take our place, that we deserved, our blood deserved to be shed because of our sin. We deserved death because of our sin. And that, that animal that we brought was a reminder that our sins had to be taken by something else that was perfect. Guys, it had to be taken by someone else that was perfect. And, and every year we sacrificed animals and the blood would be up to the, the knees of the priest every year and we're reminded of how heinous our sin is, how wicked we are, how desperately we need a savior. And guys, look, the time is finally here. Jesus has come. There's no more need for sacrifices. There's no more need for the temple. He's here. He's fulfilled it all. All of those sacrifices pointed to this one man. He hung on a cross. He bled. He died. He was the perfect lamb sacrifice for you. That's the hope of the gospel, right? And see, the whole Old Testament points towards this one hope. Your sins can be taken from you and thrown as far as the east is from the west. God will no longer hold your sins against you because he has held them against Jesus Christ. That is the beauty of the gospel. There is, listen, listen, there is no other religion in the world that deals with sin the way our God does. He takes it on himself. There's no doubt that he laid these things out and showed them how Christ is the fulfillment and he didn't remain dead, he's alive. And there's no doubt he showed them, look, this Messiah, the, the, remember, remember how Moses talked about a prophet greater than me? Remember Deuteronomy 18, guys? Remember the passage that we look to when we long for the fulfillment of this mighty Messiah who will be greater than Moses? He's come, he's here. And you know how Moses came down from the mountain with a covenant? Listen, he, God himself came down in Christ from heaven with a new covenant. He's the greater Moses. He's the final fulfillment. Here's your hope. And they couldn't refute it because it was true. That temple where you think you can find access to God, by the way, a greater temple has come. That, that, that temple built by human hands only points towards a greater temple where we can have permanent access to God through Jesus Christ. Oh, there's so much, so much I'm sure he demonstrated from the Old Testament and we don't, we don't have time to go into all of it and the text leaves it kind of open but we can be assured that Stephen rightly argued from the word of God. And they take what he says and they twist it and they manipulate it and they make it seem like he's against God when all the while he is for God and for their very soul. 
And all this had one final goal as they begin to uh, get these false witnesses. Believe me, listen, listen, they're so enraged. And we're going to see this. We're going to get to the end of chapter 7. And they're so enraged by Stephen's stand uh, for the truth that he believes that they gnash their teeth. They're so angry. All they want to do is put him to death. And here the agenda is clear. They are going to destroy his life. All of this is a mock trial. It's just like Jesus. The whole goal was to put him on trial and to accuse him wrongly and then to kill him. Christian, doesn't this remind us of how we must consider the cost? The world will defame your character. They will distort your words and they will seek to destroy your life. And can I just submit again to you, we've said it often, but it, I, we just, God is doing something, I think, in our hearts and in this church, and he's wanting us to get out into this world and do something that we've never done before. And so many of us who have been Christians for so long have never been faithful to bring the gospel message to the world around us. God is changing that in our hearts. Confrontation is the norm in the Christian life. He said what needed to be said with no thought of what it would cost him personally. Listen, we sit around and we debate about, you know, well, if, if, I, if I say the name of Jesus, will people not like me anymore? Or, or what if I get in trouble for, for mentioning that I'm a Christian at work? Are you kidding me? There is no thought to himself here. No thought to what it's going to cost him. Just one more quick point before we move on to our final point. Listen, listen to this. <laughs> I think there's some truth to what they're saying here in verse 13. This man never ceases to speak. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I, think, I, think there's, I think that Stephen could not stop talking about the truth of Jesus Christ. Can that be said of you? Can that be said of me? This man, this woman, never ceases to speak words about Jesus. I pray God make this true of me. Finally, look, faithfulness requires preserving Christ-like countenance. Countenance. The demeanor of Christ And this last verse is so powerful. Oh, there's so much here. This is so amazing. And gazing at him. Listen, wait, let's just, let's back up for a second. Who is it that they're concerned about in this? Who is it that Stephen is assaulting? Who is it that Stephen is blaspheming? Keep this in your mind. Moses. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And we, we think of the face of an angel and we have visions of pudgy little babies. Or, or maybe like a really soft looking, you know, painting of an angel gazing lovingly upon humanity. First of all, when people saw angels in the Bible, they bowed down and worshipped out of fear. And they had to be told, don't worship me. There's so much going on here. His face, here's what you need to understand. His face is radiating 
the glory of God. Glory is the summation of all God's attributes and characters just kind of pulled together. And, you know, it's that kind of catch-all phrase to describe the magnificence of all that God is. We can say that God is holy, that God is mighty, that God is awesome, that God is sovereign, that God is loving, that God is just, that God is wrath. We can say all those things, but the one thing, that umbrella term for everything is we serve the king, the God of glory. When Moses, Moses, remember this, said, God, show me your glory. (laughs) The face of an angel, listen, as one who sits in the presence of God, there's only one other person in all of Scripture in the history of the world who had on his face the glory of God. Who was it, church? Moses, you see the irony here? He's radiating the glory of God and they're standing here saying, you blaspheme Moses and meanwhile, he is the very picture of Moses to them. Moses comes down off the mountain with the commands of God, with the covenant of God, bringing the truth of God, and he had been in the presence of God, sitting as one face-to-face, as a friend with God, and his face is literally glowing glory, and people can't, they can't bear to look at him. They're terrified, and he has to wear a veil over his face, and yet here he is, standing in the midst of this opposition, his face just glowing from the glory of God. This is an incredible rebuke by God. Stephen, like Moses, had met with God face to face in Jesus Christ. He comes bringing the truth of God like Moses. He comes bringing a newer and better covenant that Moses longed for. And Israel embraced Moses initially as a prophet from God and they highly esteemed him, but don't miss the irony here. The one now who is just like Moses, who has been in the presence of God and comes speaking for God, bringing down from the mountain a new covenant from God, they will not listen to. They are guilty, aren't they, of blaspheming Moses and God for it was Moses who looked forward to Jesus and wrote and spoke of him. Can you hear the words of Jesus? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. And we can almost see Stephen in this last scene making eye contact with the high priests and the other members of the council, and what they saw must have startled them. There's no anger in him, There's no fear, there's no bitterness, there is the face of an angel. You want to know what they saw? They saw the face of Jesus Christ. And that's what the world needs to see in us. Especially when our backs are up against the wall and everything is turned against us, they need to look at us and see Jesus Christ radiating from our hearts, radiating from our lives, radiating from our faces. As we're closing here, let me read to you 2 Corinthians 3. Don't turn there, just listen. Where Paul says this. He says, yes, to this day, 
when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is a call for Christ-likeness. May God help us to radiate Jesus Christ in everything we say and do.